Please remain standing as we hear God's word. And before I read it, let me just say two things. Um, after last week's passage, some people were like, wow, that's really graphic. Okay. So we're never going to issue trigger warnings about the word of God. Just know that the Old Testament and the New were written for people like you and me. So there's, there's things in there that if you don't think it's appropriate for little ears to hear, uh, let me encourage you to keep children in this service. And I would rather have us, we have small kids, talk about it at home after hearing it at church than on TikTok. So we're going to go right through the Bible. That's what we do here. Second thing is, if you're new to Christianity and all this, just pay attention that, especially after last week, God puts stories in the Bible that do not flatter the central characters. If you're going to make up a religion, that's not the way to do it. Okay? So it gives us people in all of their messed up times and places, and it gives us everything raw. And that's what the Bible does, and that's a good thing. So before we hear Genesis 39, and it's on page 33, uh, we're not going to put it up on the slides because it's a lot of text. So you can pull out a Bible right there in front of you from the pew racks, page 33. Let's pray before we hear God's word. Father, thank you for giving us stories that do not shy away from the hard realities of life in a fallen world. Thank you for Joseph, Lord, and thank you most of all for the lesson he learned that all of us in here have to learn, which is that Jesus is more beautiful and more desirable than all the fleeting pleasures of sin. We will never learn that lesson unless you teach us. So we humbly ask you to teach us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Genesis 39, beginning at verse 1. This is God's holy, inspired, therefore inerrant word. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then? Can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. 
And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. And as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were there in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the living God will stand forever and ever. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Notice that uh, in the NFL playoff game later today between the San Francisco 49ers and the Detroit Lions, we have something that's not happened before, I believe, in the history of the NFL. The quarterbacks of both teams could not be more different. Uh, Brock Purdy, who's the quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers, was Mr. Irrelevant in his draft class. He was the last guy drafted. Not the distinction you want. By contrast, the quarterback for the Lions, Jared Goff, number one in his draft class. You've got from worst to first squaring off this afternoon. And as I was thinking about that, I think all of us love a Brock Purdy type story. And he's, he's a strong Christian, outspoken believer. But we love the story of the guy who nobody picked to succeed, who goes kind of from rags to riches, and we have a way that that narrative works out in our heads. We're like, we're all cheering, I think, hey, let this this guy make it to the Super Bowl. Let him go all the way. We love to see the underdog win. But here's the question for everybody here this morning. What happens, not just with football, but with your life? What happens when life doesn't go according to script? What happens, in other words, where that rag-to-riches story doesn't turn out the way you thought it would? What do we do when our circumstances seem so much different than what God has promised? That's one of the reasons this story is in the Bible. Now again, 30,000-foot view. If you were reading this in Hebrew, the language it was originally written, there are no chapter numbers, there are no verse numbers. So there's textual markers that the author, Moses, put in there to kind of help us along in this narrative that runs Genesis 37 to Genesis 50. Last week we saw both Genesis 38 and Genesis 39 begin the same way. So they went down. Okay, whenever you read that phrase in the Old Testament, it's an idiomatic phrase in Hebrew. It's a phrase that Hebrew readers would have understood immediately. And whenever you read it in English and you read your Bible in the Old Testament and you read about somebody going down somewhere, it's never going to end well. It's a sign that, hey, this narrative is about to take a bad turn. 
And then you notice that, that Moses frames it with these two phrases. He says, the Lord was with him, and the Lord caused him to succeed in all he did. That bookends both parts, or uh, uh, both sides, as it were, of this narrative. And what we're learning through this study, as we saw last week, is Jesus' family, Jesus is descended from Judah, who we talked about last week, is a bunch of messed up folks. And if you're a Christian, or if you're not a Christian here this morning, and you're checking out Christianity, when you come into a church, you're coming into a dysfunctional family. That's what this teaches us. Everybody's messed up, and therefore, this story should give us hope. But the main thing, from this narrative particularly, is that God shows us He's with us, whether we're being blessed in our lives or whether life is hard. He's with us, these will be our two points, He's with us in the palace and He's with us in the prison. He's with us when life is great and He's with us when life is really hard. So, first of all, God is with us in the palace. Now, remember last week we saw that Genesis 38 covers about 20 to 22 years of history. Now, we're switching back. Okay, we've learned what happened with the brothers after they sold Joseph into slavery. Now we're back to Joseph. What's happened with him? That's where the narrative picks up. He's down in Egypt, and by God's providence, he, he ends up in one of the most powerful houses in the entire ancient world. Okay, Egypt is the military and uh, economic superpower of this time in the ancient world. And Joseph find himself, finds himself in Potiphar's house. And notice how this begins. God blesses him. Now imagine what must, must be going through Joseph's mind. He's been sold into slavery, and prior to that, he was the golden child, right? He was his father's favorite son. He had been given that coat of many colors, which was a, a royal robe to say if you had any doubt who the favorite was, it was removed when he wore that coat. And then he was sold into slavery after getting revelations from God that he would one day be a ruler in all the world, that he'd be a ruler in this ancient known world. And, and he was in a slave caravan, and now he's in the sovereign's household from slavery to sovereignty. And notice what, what we're told here. The Lord caused all that he did to prosper. And this ought to make us pause right now because God is trying to teach Joseph two things here, at least. And he's trying to teach us the same two things. He's trying to teach us how to love him when things are going well. Because here's the way I think most of us operate. I know it's the way my own heart works. When things are going well, it's a trial of your faith. It's a different kind of trial than when things are going wrong, but there's a trial of prosperity, my friends, just as much as there's a trial of poverty. They're different in their own ways. But when it comes to our faith, let me suggest that when things are going well, the trial of prosperity can be harder. Because very, very few of us, when things are going well, would be able to look at us, each other and say, you know what, the closest times I had with Jesus were when my life was going great. No, what happens? Things start going well. Is your prayer life better? Do you feel closer to God? No, we, we tend to forget him. We tend to think, okay, great, things are going awesome. I, I, you know, God, that's a really nice add-on to my otherwise good designer lifestyle, and I'll go with him when I need him. But you see, what God's doing with Joseph 
is what, and what he's doing with us is not only teaching Joseph how to love him in various circumstances, he's teaching Joseph how to trust him in various circumstances. Joseph was entrusted with all this because God had been working on his heart. And here's why he could trust Joseph. He knew that Joseph loved God more than he loved God's gifts. And that's the, that's the secret for the Christian life, isn't it? See, what, what can happen is we fall in love with the gifts, not the giver. Especially when things are going well. When we're in the palace, as it were. And here's, here's what he's up to. Here's what God is doing in our lives. When he gives us good things, he's teaching us to enjoy his blessings without suspicion. What do I mean by that? Most of the time, a lot of us walk around suspicious when things are going well. We think, well, the other shoe's going to drop. You know, God, God is kind of a God like that. That's a wrong view of God, my friends. And that reveals something about our hearts, doesn't it? When we're suspicious of God. Oh, we can't stay this way. God won't bless me. Don't be suspicious of your heavenly father. Let me ask you parents here. Would you want your kids suspicious of you when you're trying to bless them? If you're going into your, your son or your daughter and you're doing your best to provide for them and love them, what if they said, yeah, I'm just not really sure you love me, dad or mom? Our heavenly father is the same way. He doesn't love when his children are suspicious of him because he loves them so much that he just wants to spill his affection out on us. So he's teaching us to, to love him and enjoy his blessings without suspicion, and he's also teaching us to welcome the hardships he will send us without suspicion and without bitterness. You can suspect God in both cases. Maybe he's not good. Maybe the other shoe will drop, or when hard times come, we go, maybe God's abandoned me. Notice that, that Joseph doesn't do either. And what, why, why are we learning this? Because Joseph, when we met him, he was this cocky, arrogant, 17-year-old punk, basically. You know, he's the rich kid. He's the favored kid. And now God's been at work in his heart. And now we're starting to see that Joseph is beginning to learn what it means to follow God, to love God for who God is, and not just for what he can get from God. But then, God's with us in the prison because things take a turn, don't they? We meet Potiphar's wife. And notice, again, the parallels here with Genesis 38. In both cases, people in power use sex to make other people victims. Judah did it with Tamar in the last chapter. Remember, Judah's a man, Tamar, is a widow. She's one of the most vulnerable people in this ancient society. And, and Judah abuses that power for years. And she is has to resort to playing a prostitute in order to make him do his duty. And that, at the end of that story is so amazing, isn't it? The woman who was forced to play a prostitute comes out looking the best in Genesis 38. That's the way God works. This time, the script is flipped. Here you have a very powerful woman, and, and it doesn't really come, th it comes through well in English. This is a good translation, lie with me. That's a good translation of the Hebrew, but it's a little bit more forceful. In essence, she is saying to him, you get in my bed with me or else. She's abusing her power. She knows it. He's a slave. He's supposed to do whatever he's, he's called to do. 
And notice that the pattern here. She keeps doing this day after day after day. This is an immoral woman who holds a tremendous amount of power over Joseph. And he had every incentive to give in. So the question we were, were meant to ask reading this is, why didn't he give in? Why didn't he go ahead and say, hey, my life's been hard. I've been sold into slavery. Wouldn't, I mean, nobody's going to find out they're by themselves. No ring cameras. Their phones weren't listening to everything they were saying. They couldn't get caught. He had every incentive to do that. He could have said, you know, I deserve a little pleasure because my life's been really hard. But he doesn't give in. And notice the other thing here. He does everything right, doesn't he? He, he does exactly what a pastor would have told him to do. Hey, pastor, um, I've got this woman who keeps coming after me. I, you know, I'm trying to resist this temptation. I am not putting myself in circumstances to be around her. I'm trying to make sure I'm doing everything right to keep away from her. And that's all good when you face temptation. You know, we, want to put our, we don't want to put ourselves where we can fall into sin. Or as Martin Luther put it better than just about anybody else, if your head's made out of butter, don't sit near a stove. Okay? Everybody in here is a bunch of butterheads. We're all easily tempted. And Joseph does everything right. And the devil still finds a way, doesn't he? Because he gets this right moment with Potiphar's wife. And again, she keeps saying this, and then finally she demands it and grabs him. And he runs away, and she's got his clothing and his just notice the irony here, friends. Once again, Joseph's clothes get him in trouble. This time through no fault of his own. And he runs away, and he flees, and she lies. And he goes from having the best food, the softest bed, the most power just besides Potiphar and Pharaoh, to being in prison again. Do you think it would have been easy for him to go, God, where are you? I thought we were done with this part of the test. And it's right back into the prison, and there's no end in sight. And yet, the hope comes in here, doesn't it? Verse 21, I love this. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. It's a marvelous word in the original. It's used just hundreds of times in the Old Testament. The Hebrew term is chesed. It means steadfast love. It's how we translate it here, but it would take about 20 English words to translate it. It means love, loyalty, care, concern. It's expressing the heart of God towards his people. The Lord showed him his covenant faithfulness. See, that's what the Bible's about. God, the covenant God, blessing his people when they're at their best and when they're at their worst for his own name's sake, not because of what we do. This is why Christianity is different than any other world religion. There's no concept of covenant faithfulness. There's no concept of chesed love in any other world religion where God has bound himself because of who he is to love his people. And isn't it amazing that he puts this right here? when Joseph would have least expected that God would have been showing him love because he's back in prison. 
certainly didn't feel loving, certainly didn't feel caring. And so what this, what this does for us, as we're thinking about how does, how does this story affect us today, one of the things we want to realize is that Joseph is not just a good moral example. The point of this story is not, go be more like Joseph. Okay? Are there things you want to emulate from Joseph? Sure. But he's a signpost pointing to a greater reality. And that greater reality is Jesus. Because the story here parallels the life of our Lord on so many levels. Consider the fact that Jesus had everything. What does Paul call him? The Lord of glory, 1 Corinthians 2.8. Then what does Paul say in Philippians 2, 5 through 11? He was in the form of God, and then he emptied himself and became a slave. And when Jesus does that, when he goes from, just like Joseph, from riches to rags, what does he do? He's tempted. He's tempted all the while in his earthly ministry. But we can skip it over when we read the beginning of the Gospels and Satan comes and tempts Jesus, and we can kind of storybook Bible those, you know? It's like, oh, he's out there in the wilderness. Then he's on the temple, and he's like, get away from me, Satan, and then they move on, and it's the next storybook page. Those were real temptations, friends. And Jesus was fully human. He had to resist the devil. And do you know why he was doing that? Not just then. Because the Bible tells us that at one point, Satan left until an opportune time. And that opportune time came the night that Jesus was betrayed. Satan was content to wait three years. Content to just keep waiting for the right time to tempt Jesus. But here's the question. Why did Jesus undergo that temptation? Why did he keep resisting? Because he's greater than Joseph. And because he knows we are so weak. That's where we're not like Joseph. Most of us get tempted, we give right in. Jesus never gave in. Do you know why? Author of Hebrews tells us, for the joy that was set before him. You want to know what Jesus' joy is? You. Me. That's his joy. When the devil came and tempted him, it wasn't just bare resistance. Jesus didn't just, you know, muster up his will and say, I'm going to defeat you, Satan. I'm going to get away from you, devil. No, he said, there's a purpose for this that I'm resisting. And he saw his family, as it were. He saw believers and said, they are my joy. They are weak. I will be strong for them so that I can help them when they are at their worst. You know that's better than what Joseph had? We think if I had dreams and I saw God that way, it'd sure be a whole lot easier to trust him. The Bible does not say that. It says we're in a better position than Joseph was because Jesus has come, he's lived, he's died, he's been raised from the dead, he's poured out his Holy Spirit so that he lives within us. So that his joy becomes our joy. 
And it's you being his joy, me being his joy, that enables us to find our joy in him. And my friends, that's the lesson Joseph learned. He learned that God and knowing God and trusting the Lord was greater than the fleeting pleasures of sin. And until that is our framework for dealing with sin, we will always give in to temptation. Do you, think about it like this. God made you to desire things, friends. Desires are not wrong. They just get inordinate. That's what happened with Potiphar's wife. Here's a, a woman who's sexually immoral. And that speaks right to our society today, doesn't it? And, and people with, with, with these kind, this kind of background that she probably had, God can work in that. God can redeem that. But we live in a, a society that's highly sexualized and pornography's everywhere, adultery's everywhere, sexual immorality is everywhere. And this sin in particular is so hard to resist. And it's not a bad desire. God made you to have that desire. Okay, but here's the problem, right? They become ruling desires. And this gets to what the old writers called our affections, our desires. It, it doesn't matter. I've done ministry long enough. I've sat with, with couples where adultery you know, has been committed. And you can sit there and talk to somebody and go, okay, this is going to like wreck your family. It's going to wreck your finances. It's going to mess up generations. Okay, you can go through all that stuff. And on paper, somebody can look at that and go, you're right, pastor. I don't want to do that. You put them in a situation and God is not the treasure of their heart. They're going to want that moment of pleasure with the forbidden person a lot more than they're going to want Jesus. doesn't matter how rational the argument is. doesn't matter if they know they're going to throw their life away. And it doesn't just have to be adultery. I mean, it's, it's the beginning of the year. I mean, let's think about dieting, right? If you're doing like Whole30, okay, why do you want the milkshake more than flax seeds? Okay? It's about desire, right? Because flax seeds are awful, and milkshakes taste delicious. Why do you want french fries more than kale, aside from the fact that kale is part of the fall? Why do you want them? Because at that moment, greasy french fries taste better than disgusting, crunchy kale. And your desires rule you. You go like, hey, I don't want to break my diet. I'm trying to get, you know, whatever, trying to get healthy, whatever it is. Your desires rule you. What Joseph had learned, this is the only thing that kept him from giving in. He had learned what the psalmist talked about, that God's love and tasting and seeing that it is good is better than life. And so few of us can say that, can't we? That I'd rather have Jesus, as we sang last week, than nothing at all. Can we, can we really say that? I know it's hard for me. Now, I like my comforts. I like all the things the world can offer us and all of us do. But do we love Jesus above all? 
And, and that, that's the only way we're going to stop resisting sin. How, how does that work out in our lives? Let me say two things. We'll finish up. This narrative and the entire shape of the Christian life follows the pattern of Jesus. Death, then resurrection. And if you're a Christian, that is what's going to mark out your life on a day-to-day basis. Death and resurrection. You're going to have to learn to die even when your circumstances are going well. Do you know why? Because even when you have everything going right in your life, this world and the things in it were never meant to satisfy you fully. That's why it's going to be predictable no matter what happens with the Super Bowl. You're going to watch one of these athletes get interviewed who's got all the money, all the fame, all the success, and then inevitably are going to say something like, I, I, there's got to be more. And you don't have to be a Super Bowl winner to say something like that. Everybody will experience that. You'll have everything going right, and you're still going to feel some more longing. That is a feature, not a bug in God's world, my friends. He loves you too much to let this world satisfy you more than he can satisfy you. That's, what he, that's the death part of prosperity. The resurrection part comes when we learn to enjoy whatever he's given us because he gave it to us, not just because of what it is. We learn to treasure him even when we have all the treasure we could possibly want. And then you're going to have a death and resurrection. I'm going to have a death and resurrection when God brings hard circumstances our way, when he puts us in the prison, as it were. And there, there you get to know Jesus, right? There you get to know a little bit of what Paul meant in Colossians 1.24 when he says, I fill up what is lacking in my body in the afflictions of Jesus. He does not mean that Jesus did not suffer enough to atone for our sins. Not in his mind at all. No, you read the context of Colossians 1 and Paul is saying, you want to follow Jesus? Colossians? Chattanoogans? Realize that when you sign up to be a Christian, you're going to follow the footsteps of the Master, which means that there's an allotted measure of suffering for every Christian. Boy, girl, man, woman, rich, poor. Everybody who follows Jesus is going to have to engage in cross-bearing. Luke 9.23, if any man would come after me, let him take up his cross and deny himself daily. Daily. There will be a death in our sufferings. But here's what Joseph also learned. Resurrection is always there, even if our circumstances don't change. God can bring a resurrection in our lives, even when circumstances don't change. That's what happened to Paul. You ever read Paul's prayers? Just open up any one of the letters by Paul. He usually begins with a prayer. A lot of them are written from prison. One thing you'll never get from Paul when he prays is, please pray that God would get me out of prison. Never praise it. He never prays, change these awful circumstances I'm in. No, he prays things like, may the word of the Lord spread freely. 
pray for yourselves. Pray that the gospel might go abroad. Do you know why he prayed like that? It wasn't because he was some super Christian. Paul said he was the chief of sinners. It's because he learned the lesson Joseph learned. He learned that the steadfast love of the Lord, that chesed love, was more satisfying than life itself. So he could stay in prison because Jesus was there. And whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, it's only when we know God with us in Jesus that we will know God is with us when our circumstances fail us. This came home to me this week. I was, I was talking to a friend of mine. He was a missionary, tremendous counselor, friend, very wise. And he re- brought up to my attention, I'd re- really not really read much of this woman's story until he said, you've got to read this. Helen Rosevere. Sure, many of you know her. She was a, a missionary in the 1960s in the Congo. And she had, she had poured her life out to become a doctor and go serve people by doing surgeries and vaccinations and medications, doing good to this remote part of the world. And then, in the 1960s, there was a cultural revolution. And as typical of every single Marxist revolution of the, of the, of the 20th century, there was a lot of bloodshed. And they came for her. And she recounts the story of the Saturday afternoon that the revolutionaries came into her village. And they tied her up. And for the next 72 hours, they brutalized her in unspeakable ways. One of the soldiers kicked her so hard in the back of her head that it knocked all of her teeth out. And in the middle of some horrific things they were doing to her. Here's what she recounts. I think the words that God spoke to me, although I didn't hear them as words, were, I want you to stop and take this in. This is what she's asking herself, that she's hearing from the Lord. Can you thank me for trusting you with this if I never tell you why? That's what she felt the Lord asking her. And then she said, Somehow I answered, yes, God. If this fits for purposes, I don't know how, but yes, God, thank you for trusting me with this. And she said, the torture continued, but I had peace instead of fear. On Tuesday, they took her to a village, and they gathered up some, some villagers who she had served, 800 of them all men. And they were going to make a mock trial of her because the things that they had done to her were shameful to be done in this culture. And if she had admitted to them, they had taught them how to say crucify her. So they were going to have a mock trial. And so they got her in front of these men and said, confess to what's happened to you. Then they struck her with the butt of a gun again and again and again until her eyes were swollen shut and she could barely speak. And as she opened her mouth to stop the torture, she said, I heard a sound I never expected to hear. The sound of 800 men sobbing. They pushed the revolutionaries aside, ran them away, and said, she is one of us. And they said in their own language, she is bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. You see, in the midst of her suffering, God brought a resurrection that she could never have imagined. 
And we might not ever go in those same circumstances, but the question for all of us here this morning as we leave is the same that was asked to her. Can we thank God for trusting us with whatever hard circumstances he's trusted us with, even if he never tells us why? And we will only be able to answer that question the way that Helen Rosevere did. If we know God with us in Jesus and therefore God is with us when life is in the palace or the prison. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you're with us. Thank you, Jesus, that you will make yourself beautiful to your bride. Oh, Father. Warm our cold hearts. Take away things, anything that would keep us from loving you fully. It's a hard prayer to pray, Lord. But we know you're merciful and gentle. And you will love us in ways we never imagined, even in our most difficult circumstances. So bless us as we leave this place, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.